Morning, everybody. Uh, we've been talking about the book of Mark uh, last week and this week, and we're going to continue in the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. The word gospel means good news. Our operating question, I'm going to take this off because I can. Our operating question uh, over these next few weeks about the gospel of Mark, and you know, since gospel means good news, is what is the good news in this particular gospel. And the stories that we're talking about each week, we're going to be asking, what is the good news? So I wanted to start uh, this week, uh, this week's message by actually just sort of reading aloud the story. It's a a fairly familiar parable, um, and I want you to sit and listen to it. I'm going to ask Elisa to read it because she has a better voice than I do, and it's nice to have different voices Um, And I'm going to put the words on the screen, so if you're a word text person, you can read along. If you're an oral person, you can close your eyes and just listen. But I want you to really imagine this scenario. Imagine being there with Jesus. Put yourself in that situation, and he tells this story or this parable. And what I want you to listen for, we're actually going to do some catchbox dialogue right after we read this, because I want to get us started with some ideas. The question is, what's the good news in this story for you? As you listen to this parable, where do you see or hear good news in this particular parable in Mark? So we'll begin at the very beginning of Mark chapter 4. Once again, Jesus began teaching by the lakeshore. A very large crowd soon gathered around him, so he got into a boat. Then he sat in the boat while all the people remained on the shore. He taught them by telling many stories in the form of parables, such as this one. Listen, a farmer went out to plant some seed. As he scattered it across his field, some of the seed fell on a footpath, and the birds came and ate it. Other seed fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The seed sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow. But the plant soon wilted under the hot sun, and since it didn't have deep roots, it died. Other seed fell among thorns that grew up and choked out tender plants so they produced no grain. Still other seeds fell on fertile soil, and they sprouted, grew, and produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even a 100 times as much as had been planted. Then he said, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Later, when Jesus was alone with the twelve disciples and with the others who were gathered around, they asked him what the parables meant. He replied, You are permitted to understand the secret of the kingdom of God, but I use parables for everything I say to outsiders so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. When they see what I do, they will learn nothing. When they hear what I say, they will not understand. Otherwise, They will turn to me and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, If you can't understand the meaning of this parable, how will you understand all the other parables? The farmer plants seed by taking God's word to others. The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message, only to have Satan come at once and take it away. The seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. 
The seed that fell among the thorns represents others who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life, the lure of wealth, and the desire for other things, so no fruit is produced. And the seed that fell on good soil represents those who hear and accept God's word and produce a harvest of 30, 60, or even 100 times as much as had been planted. Thanks. Take a minute, think about that. What's good news in there for you? There's something in there that feels good news to you. And you Just can lift a hand to share. This is yeah. not rhetorical, right, Dwayne? Right, not okay. rhetorical. Lift up your hand. And Figure that's why I'm holding catch box. Yeah. <laughs> You guys aren't used to being put on the spot. Everyone's before. all messed up because we're starting like, with dialogue minute. instead of ending. This is supposed to happen at the end. <laughs> there we go. You know, I've heard this. I'm Rob. I've heard this story a hundred times and heard sermons on it. And he doesn't explain it in his explanation, but at the beginning it says some of the seed was <clears throat> eaten by birds. And the good news there is, even when you have no idea what the outcome of your work is or the outcome of your relationships, it can still come to good in ways you'll never know. Mm. It's eaten by birds and carried away. We all know that's a way a lot of seed is dispersed, right? Yeah. So that's good news, I guess. That is. No, that's a great insight. That's a very... That's incredible, yeah. Thank you, sir. What a great catch. Uh, (laughs) I'm Kim. Um, For me, it's that God had to know exactly where the rich soil is, but he didn't limit, you know, the planter didn't limit where he sowed the seed. He just scattered them around. Maybe, Maybe to go with your thing about the birds, you know, maybe it's not where they start out, it's where they end up. Yeah, I think all that we know now about seeds and agriculture, like you're talking about, seeds get carried around by all kinds of critters or animals or the wind or all kinds of things. Yeah, I think that's awesome. That's really great. Any other insights? What's good news to you? I think some of the good news is that it doesn't depend on us. The outcome doesn't depend on us. Yeah. So we put the word out there by showing Christ to the world and what happens is out of our hands. Yeah, I love that. I do. There's one up here in the front too, I think. Oh, it's the same thing. <laughs> okay. Somebody on Zoom? Great. Sabrina writes, it's good news because we get to respond. The soil is part of the deal. Mm. Nice. That's on us, yeah, that we're the soil, yeah. I'll add that I I think one of the elements of good news is that uh, there's not a lack of clarity in that Jesus isn't isn't just saying randomly like, hey, hope works. He's he's laying out some of the the problems that we can run into. Like, he's saying, be be aware of these things, right? These are are pitfalls. These are things that can derail us. And I appreciate the clarity there because otherwise we might not be able to identify some of the things that pull us away from, from real growth. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, great. Well, you can continue to think because there'll be a chance. Was there somebody? Did I miss somebody? No? You're good. Okay. Um, you can continue to think because there'll be another chance to share at the end. So I'm not robbing you of that. I just wanted to sort of get your brain thinking about, about how we approach this and, and what is the good news? What might be the, the things we take away from this, from this particular parable? Um, and uh, I had a couple that I thought of, and some of you guys mentioned some of those. I think one thing that excited me is that the kingdom of God is inevitable. Like the farmer scatters the seed, and there's no concern, oh my gosh, what if none of it grows? The end of the story is there's a harvest that is a hundredfold. And just a little contextual understanding here. We see 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold may not necessarily register. But if you lived in an agricultural society in the ancient Near East, you would recognize that immediately as complete lunacy. Absolutely impossible that a crop could yield that much. And that was the point. Everything in the story that Jesus tells is, is pretty believable up to that point. And then he says, and then you're going to get a hundred times the crops that you actually planted in your seeds. Like, what? But that's how the kingdom of God works. And it's inevitable. It doesn't depend on us, as you said, right? It's kind of not about us. The, the farmer is, if you haven't figured this out, the, the farmer, the one who's scattering the seed, that is God. Or Jesus, and we can use those interchangeably. Jesus in the place of God. That is Jesus spreading the word of the kingdom some of it takes hold some of it doesn't but it's inevitable that there's going to be a harvest there's going to be the kingdom of God is going to come and that peace that shalom that wholeness that the kingdom of God is that is going to happen so that to me is really good news about this story I like that aspect of it there's another part and that is that God is responsible for the growth God is responsible for the growth so the idea is a seed, like seeds fascinate me probably because I'm terrible at gardening and yard work. And it's sort of a running joke because almost every time I stand up here to teach, there's some sort of gardening metaphor because it happens all the time in scripture. And I don't know anything about anything when it comes to that. But it's amazing to me that even now, everything that is needed for life is contained in that tiny little seed. And any gardener or farmer knows that you can't force a seed to grow you put a seed in the right context in the right environment you provide the the necessary things for it soil water light and the seed just comes to life so to me the good news here is that God is saying look this is the word of God it is a seed and it will it will come to life on its own if the context is right it's up to God for it to grow it's up to God to do that work and I love that idea Right? And the other thing about a seed is it's, it's Jesus is scattering life and health. Like the seed represents life. He's not, he's not scattering judgment, condemnation, rules, legality. He's not scattering those things. He's scattering the potential for life. And God does that work of bringing things to life. I think that's really, really cool. And then the third thing I thought was really good news and I'm going to focus more on this one today, is the good soil part. And I think that's kind of the, one of the main things. It's at the end of the story, Jesus says, well, if, there's, if the soil is good, then the, then the seed takes hold and we get a great harvest, right? So what is our role in this? Who are we in this parable? Well, I don't know. We're not the, this farmer. We know that. We're not the seed. We know that. Maybe we're the soil and, you know, I don't know, but sometimes we're also the seed when the seed grows. I, I don't know. It's sort of ambiguous, but one thing we do know is that the good soil is important in the story, and to cultivate good soil is, is on us. 
we need to make sure that our, our hearts, our lives are fertile soil to receive the seed that is the word of God. And if we do that part, then God does the multiplication of the harvest. God makes the life grow, the, the harvest comes, the kingdom of God comes. So it's on us to have fertile soil in our lives. What does that mean? And I spent some time this week thinking about what does it mean to have a fertile heart, fertile soil? Um, and, and as Rob said, you know, we've all, many of us have heard this story taught dozens and dozens of times. It's a very popular parable in the Gospel of Mark. In fact, it's the very first parable in the Gospel of Mark. In the Gospel of Mark, most scholars agree that, that Mark was the first Gospel that was written. And Matthew and Luke were written after that and incorporated some of the ideas and themes from Mark. And so this really could be the very first parable that we, that we have record of, right? And even though it's, it's really familiar, it's still sometimes challenging to wrestle with the idea of how do we become fertile? How do we make our hearts right? And I was uh, watching a documentary a few weeks ago. It had nothing to do with, with Jesus or church. Um, it actually had to do with personality, I'm very interested in personality. Some of you guys also uh, may be in that same camp. Um, and uh, I know that there are many of you who, who read a lot and, and think a lot about the Enneagram, which is like different personality types and like, like what are the characteristics of someone who is this type versus that type. And um, I've, I look a lot at the Myers-Briggs. That, that's a popular one that's been around for a while. Workplaces do this. Businesses are like making all their employees take personality tests so they know how to like get along with other people. Um, and so I was watching this documentary, and actually I had never heard of this particular approach, but apparently back in the 80s, psychologists and researchers did a lot of study about how we describe personality. And, and really it's, it's not about different personality types, it's more about five, they call them the big five, key personality traits. And the way they came up with five is they surveyed thousands of people and asked them hundreds of questions, and they correlated their answers. So in other words, the, the questions were self-descriptive, meaning question one might be, I am organized, yes or no? Yes. This question number two might be, I am responsible, yes or no? So I marked the answer to that one. Question number three might be, I am creative, you mark yes or no. And what the researchers did is they took the answers to all those questions and they correlated them and they found that certain answers tended to go with other answers. If you were likely to say you were organized, you were also likely to say you were responsible, right? Um, and so they would put them all together. So they came up with five personality traits. They call them the big five and they spell the word ocean, O-C-E-A-N. This is going somewhere, I promise. Just bear with me here. O is for openness. How open are you to new ideas and new experiences? C is for conscientiousness. How conscientious are you in terms of, you know, getting things done, being organized and responsible, right? Um, e. E is for extroversion. So how extroverted are you? Um, a is for agreeableness. That's how agreeable are you in getting along with other people. And the N is neuroticism. Neuroticism, not a very good word. They didn't come up with a better one. They should have, but it's basically um, how likely are you to be stressed out about things. I'm not going to talk about the other four. I'm going to talk about the very first one, openness. Openness, because I was captivated when I watched this documentary about the idea that all of us are more or less open than other people, right? We have openness is something we can measure. Um, we all exist sort of either more open or less open. But openness to new ideas and new experiences, I think, is a key to fertile soil. A key to receiving 
what God has for you. The idea of being open to what he may be wanting to tell us. So I want to talk a little bit about openness um, and scientists, not all the traits are evenly distributed, but the, the openness trait is evenly distributed across the population in a normal distribution curve, right? Sorry, I'm sorry I'm bringing math in on a Sunday morning, guys, really. But just, it's just a pretty picture. I made sure to get one with colors, so if that helps to make you feel better. Um, <laughs> so everybody exists on this bell curve somewhere, but 68% of people are going to exist kind of in the middle, if that makes you feel better. We're all a little bit more or a little bit less than center. Some may be more extreme than others. But the, the way this works, and I kind of want to give you some of the traits of openness so we can see what low openness versus high openness means. And think about this in terms of, of how this affects your receptivity to what God might be wanting to teach you or show you or how you might grow as a disciple. I think there's a discipleship correlation here. So people who have low openness uh, tend to be more dogmatic uh, people who have high openness are more open to considering new ideas and thinking about the world in new ways. People with low openness are more certain that their personal beliefs are correct, but people with high openness are more willing to consider that they might be wrong. People with low openness tend to prefer routines and traditions and familiarity, but people with high openness tend to enjoy trying new things. Okay? People with low openness are more likely to have conflicts with other people. But they find that people who with high openness are more open to other views and more tolerant of differences of opinion. And finally, those with low openness are, are less open to different cultures and belief system ideas and kinds of people. And those with high openness are less likely to be prejudiced. So as I think about this idea of openness, and, and none of us are on any of these extremes, right? I'm going to say that again, really clear. Like we're all sort of somewhere in the middle. And the other thing that's important about this is contrary to what some of us might think about personality, it's not fixed. It's not like you're stuck where you are. I think our challenge is to grow towards more openness in our discipleship. To move towards that idea of being open to new ideas, being more willing to admit that we might be wrong about a particular belief or a particular idea or the way we've thought about something for all of our lives. And I think actually Jesus teaches us to be more open. I think that if you look at the Gospels and see how Jesus teaches and what he does, openness is a theme that runs throughout. Because he's constantly taking the teachings of the day and he's turning them upside down. And he's saying, okay, teachers of the law, this is the way that you have interpreted this and always said that this is how it should be done, but I'm going to do this a different way. And I'm going to say that that is more faithful to God than what you are doing, right? He did this with the practices of the Sabbath, right? There were lots of rules that had to do with the Sabbath, um, and, and they were very dogmatic about those. And there were a couple of times where Jesus got in trouble because he healed a guy on the Sabbath. And that was, that was work. You can't do that on the Sabbath. He and his disciples, on one Sabbath, they were hungry, and they walked through some fields of grain, and they picked off some heads of grain and ate them because they were hungry. There was nothing wrong with picking grain, by the way. You, can, you could have, it was totally allowed. You could pick the grain and eat it if you were walking through. But what they got upset about was that it was the Sabbath and picking the grain to feed yourself was considered work because it was harvesting. And Jesus said, you got it all wrong. You need to be more open. Be more open to a new way of approaching this. It's not about the legality of the Sabbath. It's about the fact that the Sabbath is meant to restore and bring wholeness and shalom. And so healing and feeding Ending hunger, those are things that can happen on the Sabbath because 
That's what the Sabbath is for. So he does that. He does this all the time. Jesus, uh, he was open to new relationships with new people, right? He hung out with the salty people, with the sinners and the tax collectors and the prostitutes. He also hung out with the Pharisees. He had dinner with Pharisees too. He was open to having relationships with all kinds of different people. So I think Jesus teaches us openness and a whole new way of thinking about the world. And then finally, if we look specifically in the Gospel of Mark, you will see this phrase, ears to hear, many, many times. And you just heard it read when we heard the story, um, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And it's a weird phrase that we wouldn't use today, but basically Jesus explained it in the passage we just heard. He says, listen, not everybody's going to be open. Some people are going to be open. You, disciples, you guys are open to my teachings. Some people out there are not open to my teachings. They don't have ears to hear. But those who do will hear and will understand the parable and will perceive and they will change and grow and they will follow me, right? So the idea is ears to hear is being open. So that's why I went down the whole personality psychology route because I do think that openness matters when we're talking about having fertile soil. So being open to what Jesus wants to teach us and where he wants to take us. So finally... I want to get us through, this is the practical application part. That was all set up. Here's what we're actually going to do, right? What do we do to cultivate soil? Because, you know, soil has to be cultivated. Um, The farmers I know tell me that, um, that was a joke, I don't know any farmers. Um, You know, you think about soil. Soil is, you know, there's good soil and there's not good soil. Um, But you have to do stuff to soil to, to make it good or to keep it good, right? Even if you have great soil, if you plant the same crop year after year after year, I learned about crop rotation at some point in middle school, I think, and yeah, you have to change crops because different crops take different nutrients from the soil and you've got to balance the nutrients. You test your soil because if the nutrients aren't good, then you've got to put those nutrients, you know what I mean? So you have to cultivate the soil. You have to tend it. Sometimes you're weeding or taking rocks, whatever. So you have to cultivate good soil. So what do we do in our lives to cultivate good soil? I think the first thing we have to do is we start with curiosity. We start with curiosity. Because Jesus did. Everything that Jesus taught was based on questions. We did a a message series uh, last year sometime called Questions Jesus Asked. And we picked, I don't know, five, six, seven questions. And each message was on a different question of Jesus. The hardest part of that entire message series was figuring out which questions we wanted to talk about. Because if you look at all the questions through all the Gospels, there are literally hundreds of times when Jesus asks a question. Not his followers, not his disciples asking questions. He's the one asking questions. And I'll tell you, as a college professor, it's a really great way to teach, but it's also really hard. So most of the time when I'm teaching a class, I'm just talking at my students, and if they have a question, they'll ask the question. And that's how we figure we learn. But that's not the way Jesus did it. He encouraged curiosity. He forced curiosity by asking questions. One time he was teaching, and some people came in, and they said, Jesus, your your mother and your brothers are are outside. And he didn't just say, oh, okay, thanks. Tell them I'll be there in a minute. He didn't say that. He said, who are my mother and my brothers? Uh, well, they're right outside, Jesus, I just told you. No, it was a question, a curiosity question. Like, let's think about this in a new way. Let's, let's use this as a teachable moment to redefine what our relationships and connections are all about. 
It's curiosity, asking questions, right? Um, another time, Jesus was teaching, and there were a bunch of hungry people, 5,000 of them, probably more, on a hillside. And his disciples came to him and said, what are we going to do? We, we don't have enough bread to feed everybody. And again, he didn't say, well, I guess we're going to have to order some pizzas. He said, hey, how many loaves do you have? Let's think about those loaves in a new way. Let's not think about them in terms of how small they are. Let's think about them in terms of, hey, you have what you can bring. And let's think about the way God can reproduce and multiply things, right? So always, always, always asking, asking questions. And I think we can do that in our own lives. In fact, our life path discipleship model is based on questions, right? If you've been around long enough, you've heard us ask these questions. We ask questions like, how are you being shaped by what Jesus is doing in your life, in your circumstances? Where are you being sent by Jesus to go and make a difference and make an impact or, or be a presence? That idea of being shaped and sent has been a really important part of our formation here at Life Path. We've added a couple new ones into the mix um, just to change it up a little bit. And, and now we, we like to ask a couple of these questions. We say, where, where do you see Jesus at work? Or another question, where do you need Jesus to come in and make a difference in your life or in someone else's life? Where do you see Jesus? Where do you need Jesus? Asking questions is the number one thing that we can do to, to have open hearts, fertile soil, have an openness to what God is doing. If we start to ask questions and be curious, then we're going to begin to move towards that openness. The next thing we can do is we can cultivate new practices Jesus challenged tradition, challenged the law, challenges the practices of the day, challenged uh, um, the way people practiced their, their faith. Um, he gave us a new practice. We think of it as something that, that is pretty routine and traditional. We do it all the time. It's communion. But it was the first time Jesus had that. He, he transformed something and he gave it to his disciples. He said, hey, do this now in remembrance of me. Do this all the time. When he gave that new practice. What are some practices that exist in your faith that you can maybe change up a little bit? Maybe there's practices related to prayer, right? Maybe you've sort of always prayed a certain way and maybe there's another way you can pray. We did a, another one of our Zoom classes last year. I think this one was in the spring. Um, we did a class on prayer. Uh, and even if you didn't come to that class, we, we based it on a book by Richard Foster called Prayer. And even though in the class we only did like five or six different types of prayer, the book has like probably 20 or 25 different ways to pray, different types of prayer. I guarantee you, the way you've been praying, there's another way to pray that's, that's different and exciting and fresh for you. Think about that. As part of that prayer class, I introduced a practice that I use sometimes um, with uh, their prayer beads, Anglican prayer beads, and I found them years and years ago and someone kind of shared them with me and I thought it was kind of cool. It's, they're, they're a little bit like rosary beads, but, but not exactly. They're different. There's actually fewer of them. So it's just a string of, of beads with a cross on it. And it's meant to be a tangible, physical uh, aid, right? Some of us are tactile people. And so it's simply like you, as you go from one bead to the next, it just helps you remember a structure for your prayer. And that could be whatever you want. You could pray certain things every time you get to a certain bead. And you could pray for certain people every time you do that. And it was just a, kind of a, an aid. And it was something I shared casually in this, in this prayer group. Well, one of my friends here at Life Path tried that. And it completely, radically revolutionized his prayer life. Just by trying a new practice. And now he uses beads like that. And 
it has completely transformed the way he prays. There's something like that for you. There's something that's a different way that you can pray. Maybe try something a little bit more contemplative if you're used to being a little bit more verbal. Maybe trying something, um, kind of a different way of imagining prayer. Imaginative prayer is a really powerful tool. Whatever it is, a new practice of prayer. There are new practices related to Scripture, right? So maybe, um, maybe you're, you, you read Scripture or you have a devotional book that you use or whatever. Try something different. Try something more contemplative and go like uh, with Lexio Divina where you sort of read a passage and sort of let, meditate on it and let the words kind of come to you. Um, maybe you can do, Keith did this, I think started a, a few months ago, like actually writing by hand the scriptures, which I thought was a great idea and I haven't done yet, but I want to. But it just, you know, because I know you, you learn and process differently when you're writing something, right? So you can, you can look at scriptures and you can just hand copy that. Whatever way it is, maybe, maybe just actually making a commitment to read on a regular basis, to, to find yourself in Scripture and let it speak to you. Find new practices with Scripture, with prayer. Find new practices with worship. We always engage different postures in here, but most of us always kind of use the same posture we're comfortable with in here when we worship. Maybe if you're used to sitting, maybe you stand. Maybe if you're used to standing, you'll, you kneel. Maybe if you're used to folding your hands in front of you, maybe you lift your hands, right? Whatever it is, try something new, a new practice. Cultivates new soil, cultivates openness because God might be wanting to do a new thing in you. And if you're doing the same old practices over and over again, it'll be a lot harder for you to be open to something new. So we start with curiosity, we cultivate new practices, and we also cultivate new relationships, Cultivate new relationships. I already mentioned that Jesus hung out with the wrong crowds. Uh, Jesus models this for us very clearly that relationships were the key to how he delivered his message, right? Uh, Come, let's have dinner. Actually, for Jesus, it was like, I'm coming to your house. (laughs) I'm coming to your house and we're having dinner. And that's the way it's going to be. It was always about the relationships, right? And I know this is hard in this particular environment when we're, uh, we're masked up and, and it's, it's difficult to be in contact with people. But if you're comfortable or, or whenever you are comfortable with it, pick somebody that you haven't really connected with and go to coffee, right? Or maybe if you, if you don't want to be indoors somewhere, go for a walk with somebody. Say, hey, would you be willing to just walk and let's just chat? Right? Uh, maybe invest in relationships at your workplace. If you're in work, think about how you can, can cultivate new relationships at work that might yield a different perspective or a different way to think about your faith. Here at LifePath, we have, we have advocated for a long, long time, although we don't talk about it very much, uh, we have advocated for a long time this, this um, idea called triads. A triad is a small group of three people. You don't have to do anything official to, to have a triad. You don't have to sign up or tell me or Keith, uh, there's actually, there's a resource booklet on the back table that says a guide to triads. I think there's only one lonely, worn copy back there because it's been so long since we've uh, kind of talked about this. But if you're interested in what a triad might look like, you can grab that and you can look at it. We'll print more for next week if, if that one goes away. Um, but the idea is you just find two other people and you get together on a regular basis and you talk about your faith and what is God doing in your life and, and where are you seeing growth, where are you seeing challenge, those kind of things. So maybe you invest in new relationships that way, right? Maybe you invest in new relationships by volunteering with our teen ministry. As somebody who has worked with teens since I was a teen, like literally through college, 
my first job as a youth pastor to my job as a high school teacher to my job as a college professor. I've worked with teens almost all my adult life. And I can tell you, even if you're afraid, relationships with young people, with teenagers, is life-giving and invigorating, invigorating in an incredible way. Maybe those are the relationships that you need to invest in. Whatever it is, find a way to cultivate new relationships in your life. And then finally, the last thing is to cultivate new understandings. This might be the hardest one. And this is why when you read the Gospels, so often the disciples were confused. We like to laugh at the disciples and think that they were just dumb and just didn't get it. But we've had 2,000 years to figure out what we think Jesus meant. They were hearing it for the first time going, this is completely outside of my understanding, Jesus. I, we are not tracking at all. Please tell us what's going on, right? New understandings can be hard to come by. The trick is uncovering where our understandings come from. We've been given those understandings by the early spiritual mentors in our lives maybe they were parents or family maybe they were church leaders or sunday school teachers or whatever we've been given these base understandings by people who also sort of had their own interpretation their own filter their own lens through which they were viewing scriptures and teaching so we have to question our understandings that's different than questioning jesus or questioning our faith, right? It's okay to have doubts too. Those things are all fine. But I think sometimes we get afraid to, like if I ask too many hard questions, maybe I'm gonna question myself right out of my faith. That can't happen. It's okay. We need to have new understandings. Allow Jesus to teach you what he wants to teach you by seeking out other thoughts, other ideas. Jesus did this a lot when he said, you have heard it said, but I say to you, right? The you have heard it said part, these are things everybody knew. This is what you think your faith is about. But I'm here to tell you that it's actually more like this, right? New understanding, challenging those thoughts. Richard Rohr is a great author and uh, communicator uh, and uh, really has some wonderful books. And, and he talks about this idea of like, we, we exist in one of three boxes, right? There's order, disorder, and reorder. In terms of our thinking, in terms of our understanding of things, order, disorder, reorder. And there's no way to get from order to reorder. You can't skip over disorder. All of us at some point in our life and in our faith and our understanding of Jesus and who he was, everything made sense. We were in the order box, we understood, we could connect all the dots, right? Everything was systematic and it made perfect sense. And then, for many of us, particularly here at LifePath, we entered, or maybe dove headfirst, <laughs> into the disorder box. Wait a minute, things don't make sense anymore. Maybe it was a life event that happened. Maybe you thought, well, I always believed that if I was faithful that this is the way my life would work out, but now this incredibly difficult thing has happened. Now that doesn't make sense anymore. So we go into the disorder box. Here's the thing, if you're in the order box, you probably need to start moving into the disorder box to think about things, to cultivate new understandings, to have a fertile heart for what Jesus wants to tell you. You need to move towards disorder a little bit 
Because you need to start questioning things and wondering, okay, how does this really work? How does this really all fit together? But hear me very clearly. Don't get stuck in the disorder box. Keep moving towards reorder. You've got to keep moving to understand, okay, it, what I thought before didn't make sense. Now I'm all disoriented. Now I want to move to reorder. How do I reorient and reorder my understanding of Jesus and who he is? How do we do that? How do we move through these different boxes? The best way I know how is to find people who are smarter than me and read the books that they've written. There's so many books out there that are great, that help you in your discipleship, that help you move along in your faith. Think about things in a new way. Our book group that meets upstairs every Sunday morning before uh, the gathering, they're, they're, they're talking about peace and shalom in a way that is, I know, transforming how they are thinking. And they are moving into a reorder of how they envision God's peace, God's shalom in the world. We have a book cart, a resource cart. I was going to highlight it, and it's not there because it's actually a set piece for the play that's going to be later today. It's back here with a big wall tape to it. But that's okay. Um, so just put a pin in it. Write yourself a note. Next week, go to the book cart. We have a cart full of books that are free to loan to you. And in fact, if you get the app on your phone, you don't even have to see the books. You can just look on the app. It tells you what books we have. And there's so many great ideas there. It can help your, your new understanding. It can help you cultivate that soil to be more open to what God might say to you. If you're a podcast person, um, maybe put, find, a, find a good podcast and put that into your, your rotation. I think, Melanie, you do like 27 podcasts a week, I think, something like that. Like every, you know, some of us are podcast people, and we can just add, a, add one into our rotation that might broaden our thinking just a little bit, right? And we can cultivate new understandings. And I think one of, the, one of the biggest things is to think about um, other people. We don't cultivate our new understandings in isolation. We do it in community because it's, that's, that's how we make sure that, that we don't kind of go off track and, and start thinking weird and unusual things. We, we gather with others and we bounce our ideas off others and we talk through and work through these new understandings. And guys, that's what, that's what our MCs are for. When you're involved in an MC. Yeah, we eat together, and that's great, but that's not the whole point. The point is that we're talking about these new understandings. What is Jesus doing? How, how is he showing me new things and helping me see my faith in a new way or see my, my journey in a different way? And we share those things in our meal communities. So to sum it up, God scatters the seed. We need to be open, fertile soil. And we do that through cultivating our soil with new practices, with new relationships, with new understandings.